0: Thanks, Lisa and Dave, and good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's uh, definitely true, isn't it, that uh, Leonie and I get the better end of the deal, uh, for which we are very grateful, and uh, we'll miss you guys uh, for the next four or five weeks until we see you again. Uh, and knowing that I can go away with uh, everything sorted out with Eleanor just means that we can just get on with things, can't we, so um, it's a good, it's good, it's good morning, really, isn't it? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Hebrews 4, uh, please have your Bibles open there, and uh, let's, let's have a look at it together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for all that you have done for us through your son, the Lord Jesus, and thank you for the encouragement that you bring to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, mate. In the early days of my uh, Christian faith, I used to worry a lot. Uh, I knew that uh, Jesus had died to pay the penalty for my sin so that I could be forgiven. And yet I still struggled uh, with sin and temptation to do what was wrong in God's sight. I wanted the joy of being welcomed into God's eternal rest, into his heavenly future world. But would I be welcomed in, given my struggle with sin? You know, what if I died today? Or what if Jesus returned to judge the world today? Would I be welcomed into heaven? I don't know how you're feeling after last week's passage, Uh, even though it reminded us that entry into the great blessing uh, and joy of God's eternal rest still stands. It also had some strong warnings, didn't it? Remember, uh, verse 11 of chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Or back in, in verse 13 of chapter 4, And no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, if God sees my heart, he'll see my sin, the temptations I struggle with. How can I ever be worthy enough to enter God's perfect rest? I mean, the people of the Old Testament failed to enter the future world that God had promised because of disobedience. Because of unbelief, of suffering, of sin, they fail to make it. But what's any different about me? What's different about you? I need help. And here's the great thing about where the writer of Hebrews takes us today, because he wants us to see and he wants us to understand that God himself has provided all the help that we need. And this is a passage that gives us a a great encouragement and assures us that God himself has provided all the help that we need to be certain of entering into his promised rest. Have a a look here in um, chapter 4, verse 14, at how the writer expresses the great encouragement that is ours. Let's let's just pick it up there at verse 14. He says, "Since, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What extraordinary personal help this will be, I think, to every single one of us. Who call ourselves Christian. And notice that the help we need comes here in the form of a priest. Specifically, Jesus, our great high priest. Now we're going to come back to this part of the passage and look at it a more carefully later. But did you know that you need a priest? Now that might sound a little strange to you. Uh, for most people, priesthood seems fairly far removed from our situation today. What relevance is it, and what does it matter that Jesus is our high priest, as the Hebrews author kind of goes to great length to tell us here? Why is that so important? Well, I don't know if you uh, keep up with what's going on in the media, but it's been hard to miss out on the Price Waterhouse Coopers scandal in the media over the last couple of weeks, and people are very angry about their deception and dishonesty and misuse of information for financial gain. It's certainly not wrong to be angry at such corruption, is it? We should be angry at corruption. But I think the incredible thing is our inconsistency of what things we get angry about. We can get angry at corporate corruption, but what about telling lies? You know, we don't tend to get that upset about people telling lies, We rarely treat our own lies with the same degree of anger. And we often actually do a good job of ignoring our own lies or even justifying them if necessary. In fact, we don't even get that angry at other people's lies because in the end, that would probably be too hypocritical, wouldn't it? What we view as wrong is actually tainted by our own sinfulness. God actually can't be like that. If God looked at our sin the way that we look at our sin... He would no longer be a good God. And we can be angry at corporate corruption because we'll probably never do that sort of thing. But if I'm going to be angry about lies, then I'll need to be angry with the person who's sitting beside me. And worse still, they'll need to be angry with me. So, you know, when you get a little, you know, get a little speck of dust or something in your eye, it, it, it irritates, doesn't it? You can't just leave it there. You can't tolerate it. You've got to get it out some way. He said, that is actually what sin is like for a holy and righteous God. God can't tolerate us in his presence the way we are because of our sin. That is why we all need a priest. But not just any priest, as we'll soon see. And I want to look at this incredible help that God provides for us under three headings. That is, one, what do priests do? Two, Jesus as our great high priest. And then thirdly, Jesus as, sorry, Jesus as great high priest. Thirdly, Jesus as our high priest. And why that is such an extraordinary help to us. (coughs) Excuse me, my um, throat is a bit dry. So, first, what do priests do? Well, let me just pick it up from chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, to understand what the author is speaking about, we actually need to know a little bit about the Old Testament, especially the priesthood in the Old Testament, and Eleanor has already been incredibly helpful there, hasn't she? But the temple, or the tabernacle which came before the temple, it was the tent, that was the place where the priests carried out their duties. The great temple of the Jews was the centre of their religious and social life. It was a magnificent structure built in Jerusalem, but in a sense, it was a bit of a paradox, because on one hand, it was a symbol of being of God being with his people. And on the other hand, it was a symbol of him not being with his people. It was a symbol of God being with his people in that God dwelt in the temple. And the whole nation would come up to worship God in the temple where God was said to dwell. But when you got there... There were big signs up saying, no entry. You're sinful, you can't come in. And so at the same time, it was actually a symbol of God's absence from his people. The people would come up uh, into the four courts of the temple and, and there were big gates and there were signs that said, if you're not a Jew, do not enter or you'll be killed. You know, not the kind of signs we tend to have outside our church buildings these days, you'll be pleased to know. But as you go in further... There's another wall which which says, if you're not a Jewish man, go no further. And then if you go a bit further again, uh, there's another wall that says, if you're not from the priestly family, go no further. And then finally, it was only the high priests who could actually go in where God dwelt. And he could only do that once a year to offer sacrifices for our sins. And then he could only do that after an extensive ritual of washing and sacrifices for himself. In fact, no one could actually get as far as they got without making the necessary sacrifices as payments for their sinfulness. Otherwise, God's anger would strike you down. And so the temple was was both a symbol of God's presence with his people and yet at the same time a symbol of God's wrathful exclusion of his people. And can I say, if you ever have to go to court, what you'll need is a friend, uh, you'll need a powerful friend, uh, one who is able a little bit, like the high priest, to approach the Lord on our behalf, to approach the judge on our behalf. But if he is to represent us properly, he'll also need to be acceptable in the court's eyes. That is, the court must view him as an appropriate representative. And so our representative must be acceptable. But he must also be a sympathetic friend, one who understands us, who is on our side, not against us. There's no point having someone who is against us in that space. But because of our sinfulness, what we need is a friend in God's court, a mediator, a powerful and sympathetic high priest who will represent us and who understands the difficulties that we face. Now, knowing this, the Hebrews writer tells us that God, in his mercy, appointed priests who would represent his people. And chapter 5, verses 1 to 4 actually spell out the qualifications necessary for the task of being a priest. Now, essentially, there are two qualifications. You'll notice it there. They're to represent the people, I've already flagged it, and they're to be sympathetic to the people. There, they're two key qualifications. And so a priest was both selected and appointed by God to represent the people. That is, he had to be from the right tribe, from the Levites, and from the right family, the family of Aaron, but he was called by God, notice there in verse four, to stand before God on the people's behalf. That is, he was their mediator. He was their go-between, offering up the gifts and sacrifices of the people, as we see there in verse one. But not only was he to be acceptable to God, he was also to be sympathetic to the people, which he could be. Because see verse 2, see what it says? He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. See, that is why even the priest has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. You know, the, the priests, they could be sympathetic because they were weak just as the people were weak. They understood and they could sympathize. You know, the the Salvation Army has a a place called William Booth House. Uh, It's a drug, alcohol and gambling rehabilitation centre. And what you'll find when you go there is that many of the counsellors are rehabilitated uh, alcoholics and drug addicts. And the reason that is, is because they can be sympathetic. That is, they understand the difficulties of an addiction and the pressures of those who are going through it and trying to be rehabilitated. And so therefore, because they understand, they are able to deal gently with those people. And so there's a lesson here for us as well, isn't there? I mean, none of us, as we sit here this morning, none of us are free from sin. We have all struggled or are struggling with sin even now in some form. And so how do we respond when we see, you know, one of our friends falling into sinfulness? Well, not with harshness or with insensitive condemnation. Speak to them, for sure we must, but treat them gently. Because of our sinfulness, we can be sympathetic to other people. And so could the priests, because they too were weak. Well, verses 1 to 4 there uh, of chapter 5 spell out the qualifications of a priest in order to show us that Jesus fulfills all those qualifications. Now, the rest of our passage, uh, both before verses one to four, so the end of chapter four, and, and also after it, show us that Jesus not only has the qualities to be a high priest, but in fact that he exceeds the qualifications. That is, he is the great high priest. Now, in fact, the passage here is aiming to make it clear that he is the greatest high priest. That is, he was appointed to represent the people And he is sympathetic to their weaknesses. And verses five to six um, of chapter five tell us how Jesus was appointed. See there, verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Rather, he was appointed. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage in Psalm chapter two, verse seven, where God says to Jesus, he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's actually a very important psalm that's frequently quoted in the New Testament. It's the psalm of the Messiah, the psalm of the Christ, the anointed one. And in Psalm 2, the nations of the world are waging war against God and his anointed one. But God says to them, you can't beat me. This is my son. Today I have appointed him to rule the world. God's son would rule and the nations were to recognise God's king, you can read Psalm 2 for yourself sometime. That's the appointment of Jesus as the Messiah, as God's eternal king and ruler of the world, and saviour of the world. The second psalm that he quotes here speaks of Jesus' appointment as high priest. Now, verse 6 there of chapter 5 quotes Psalm 110, which is another psalm about the Messiah. Uh, It speaks about God's king, and it says... You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's saying that God's king is also a priest. Now the difference here is that he's a priest of a different order, that of Melchizedek. And we're going to read a lot more about Melchizedek in chapter 7, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time dealing with, well, we're not going to spend any time dealing with him now, but his was an eternal priesthood, we see. And so we're going to find out much more about Melchizedek coming out. Don't worry about it for now. What the author is saying is that Jesus, the son of God, is not only the king of the universe, but he is also the great heavenly high priest. So like the Levitical priests, Jesus is appointed by God, but his is a greater priesthood. And the significance for his readers and for us here today is that he has been appointed as our great high priest. Now, we actually see that both at the beginning and the end of our passage today, verse chapter four, verse fourteen. Have a look back there. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See, our great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. He is God's royal son and eternal king. And, and notice that he's the one who is in God's court. That is, he hasn't gone up to the temple. He's gone up to heaven, into the real courtroom, to where God is permanently. He's a powerful appointed friend who can therefore offer eternal salvation, not just kind of temporal salvation as the Levitical priests did. And he explains why in chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Sorry, I'm skipping. Go across to verses 8 to 10 of chapter 5. It says, Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And notice that the way he passed through the heavens to this great position is actually through his death. It's through his suffering and death that he paid the penalty for sin. And God raised him. And he has ascended through the heavens where he now sits enthroned as the only source of eternal salvation for you and for me. And so Jesus is powerful, but it's also crucial that he's sympathetic. Now, the Levitical priests, well, they could be sympathetic to people's struggles because they were also weak. They were sinful, like we're sinful. But Jesus wasn't. So, can he really be sympathetic? Can Jesus really understand my sin, my weakness, the temptations I face, the difficulties I face? Would Jesus know what it was like to struggle with godliness? And given my circumstances and problems, could he really understand how difficult it actually is for me? The great answer I think that this passage gives is yes, absolutely yes. Better than we can understand, he knows. Now, verse 15 of chapter 4 tells us that he was tempted in every respect, just as we are. Well, in, in one sense, he wasn't, was he? I mean, he wasn't tempted to divorce his wife. He was never married. He didn't face the kind of temptation on the internet that we might have. He didn't face evil, sinful desires that arose out of his own sinful heart, as we do, but tempted in every way to disobey God, tempted to doubt God's word, Tempted to go his way, not God's? Yes. I mean, remember Jesus' temptations in the desert at the beginning of his ministry? Jesus was never spared temptation. He just never sinned. Now, of course, we need to remember that temptation is not sinning. I mean, you can't stop birds flying over your head, but you can stop them nesting in your hair. Um, And it's the same with temptation, isn't it? They come but we don't need to indulge them. Well, chapter 5, verse 7 appears to be a picture of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. He didn't want to die. He wanted God to provide an alternative to dying on the cross. Jesus was tempted and tested to the very point of death, and yet in all his temptation, he was without sin. Now, at one level, you want to say, well, see, he is different, isn't he? He doesn't know what it's like to give in. But the truth is that because he was without sin, it shows that he actually understands it better than we do. Who do you think knows best how to run a marathon? The guy who runs a kilometre and drops out? The guy who runs 10 kilometers and drops out? Or the one who actually finishes the marathon? See, the one who goes without sinning is the one who learns the full cost of obedience to God. The one who has packed it in while he's. it's still easy, will never actually understand as well as the one who never gives in. See, Jesus took God so seriously that he was willing to die for him in the end. He kept going in the place of the guilty to die for the sin of the world. See, that's what is being said in verse 15 here. He's able to sympathize because he has been tempted in every way that we are, indeed even more. And here is actually the connection with entering God's rest and not giving up and making it to the end and being assured that we can do that because Jesus faced all that we face and more, but he didn't give up. And because of that, he can sympathize with us. When you're tempted by sin or disbelief or just feeling like giving up, Jesus knows exactly what it's like. We have one in heaven who is powerful to help us. And he sympathizes with us. Isn't that incredibly good news? But before I conclude, it's important just to understand what verses eight and nine of chapter five are saying. Because in those verses we read about Jesus learning obedience and being made perfect. And it seems to go against everything that we've just heard, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus was disobedient and impure but that's not what the verse is saying. There's no doubt that in the New Testament that Jesus is without sin. There's no doubt in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus is without sin. But Jesus wasn't imperfect in the sense of sinfulness, but in the sense of being incomplete. He wasn't disobedient and then learnt to be obedient. Rather, he learnt what obedience means in his humanity. He learned what it costs. He learned how hard it is to be obedient. He couldn't learn that in heaven. He didn't face temptation there. But in doing so, he became perfect. That is, he became complete as our high priest. See, Jesus has learned how really hard it is to be obedient. And therefore, he can be our perfect high priest. He's totally able to sympathize with our struggles even more so than the Levitical priests could. In fact, because of Jesus, we don't need any other priest. To say that we still need priests today is to somehow say that Jesus is inadequate, that he's not powerful enough, or he's not sympathetic enough. But if we approach God in in any other name but the name of Jesus, it's actually a great blasphemy. We're all going to face our day in court and answer to God for what we have done in this lifetime. And so we need to have a friend in court, one who is sympathetic to our difficulties and powerful in presenting our case to the judge. And in Jesus Christ, we have such a great high priest. He is our powerful and sympathetic friend. You can't get more sympathetic than dying for us. And so therefore, he says in verse 14, we must hold fast our confession of faith in Jesus. That's chapter 414. See, whenever the temptations come, the difficulties of life, the ridicule for being a Christian, the temptation for us is always to doubt whether it's worth it or to drop out after 100 meters of the marathon. It's kind of fairly silly, really, isn't it? But it sometimes is what happens to people. We see in in chapter 10, later on in Hebrews, that these Hebrews had had their houses destroyed and all of their possessions stolen. How would we feel if that was what had happened to us? You've paid off your mortgage. Your house is burnt down. All your possessions have been ripped off just because you've become a Christian. Hebrews says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to him and only to him. And instead of giving in or giving up, let us do what verse 16 says, because this is the key verse of this whole passage here that we've looked at today. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, this is about prayer, about approaching the almighty who can do anything, We can come before the throne of grace because we have a friend in court who has paid the penalty for our sins. The throne of grace is a a great phrase, isn't it? See, here is where we receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Mercy is not giving someone what they rightly deserve. How have you treated God throughout your life? What do I deserve from God? Well, I rightly deserve his judgment. But what he gives me instead is grace. Grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. The grace of God to us is forgiveness, love, mercy, help. When and where we most need it. See, this passage talks about our whole relationship with a God who is rightfully angry, with us because of our sin, but who is generous towards us beyond belief. So let us hold fast our confession, and let us draw near to the throne of God, the throne of grace, with full assurance that we will have sorry, that we have and that we will enter God's rest through Jesus, our great and sympathetic high priest. Friends, let's pray. I'm going to leave the heavy lifting in prayer to Archie again as he comes to lead us in a little while. But let's just give thanks to God for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you have given us such a great high priest who is both powerful and sympathetic. We rejoice that we can come before the throne of grace knowing that we have a friend in Jesus who is there to help And so we cast all of our cares on him. In Jesus' name, amen.